Hey guys, welcome to the Bee Wombs Podcast. We're coming to you from Power at the Pass here in El Paso, Texas. My name is Rich and I will be your host. The Bee Wombs Podcast stands for the Barbed Wire Open Mic Series, El Paso's longest running open mic. And this show is to highlight all the cool creators, artists, thinkers, and movers in our region and beyond. So today we've got a great show. This is episode 35. Yeah, this is episode 35. And our guest wears many hats, has worn many hats. Uh, we have Ruby Orozco Santos in the house. How are you doing? Hey, Rich. I'm <laughs> excited to be here. You're here. And, and actually, I've been wanting you on, on the show for a long time, but, you know, time and, and stuff. But let, let's tell tell uh, everyone a little bit more about Ruby. Um, currently, she has been working on a project funded by MCAD. It's the, the Artist Incubator Program Grant. And that culminated in a work that is about to be published. So, um, I mean, if you're listening to this now, it probably is already out there because this will be out there in the world. Um, and it's, tell us a little bit about your project. Sure. So I, um, I proposed uh, to write a new body of work. That's what this fund uh, supports um, to, um, to create a new body of work right now. Right. And uh and for me, what that meant was uh, a new set of poems, and I proposed to uh, use as inspiration the practice of nixtamalization in okay. the borderland. And so uh, that's kind of a mouthful, and, yeah. and yeah. some people might not know what that means. Nixtamalization. <laughs> yeah, nixtamal uh, is a Nahuatl word. It means um, formless dough. So it's what, um, before you get the masa that you mm -hmm. make your tortillas with, um, it has to, uh, this dried corn has to soak in an alkalinizing mixture. It's water with some kind of element that makes the water alkaline. So it might be limestone. Okay. Um, in the southwestern United States, um, people use jun juniper ash. Um, I read that historically the Olmecs were the ones who invented this and that they used oyster shells. So oh. nobody really knows when it started exactly, but uh -huh. it's, uh, ten, uh, you know, more than 10,000-year-old indigenous technology that was developed. Um, and and what nixtamalization does is that it, um, it makes the corn softer, easier to grind, the mm -hmm. little pericarp or like skin peels off. And it also enhances the nutritional profile of corn. So mm. it adds calcium. Um, it enhances the amino acid so that if you, uh, and niacin is a big one, niacin. So if you um, are a people who rely on corn as your sole grain, mm -hmm. and if you don't examinize it, then there will be a lot of disease at a population level, a niacin deficiency, mm -hmm. which creates uh, like skin lesions and other problems can be deadly. Um, and so this, this process of preparing corn in this way makes it um, edible at a population level as your main source of, of grain. Okay. And so it's a science that was developed uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's a the uh, traditional way of preparing corn um, products like tortillas, tamales, even pozole, like the hominy. Um, but nowadays, you know, we get the hominy in cans. There's a, a lot of tortillerias rely on maseca. Yeah. And so uh, it's something that not a lot of people practice anymore. And so I was, uh, I'm lucky enough that I'm in the work that I do, I get to meet 
a lot of people that um, still do practice their ancestral traditions. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I wanted to um, shadow some local home practitioners mm-hmm. who are still, you know, this is an artisanal process and they're still doing it at home, even though they don't have to, you know, they could go buy tortillas <laughs> at <laughs> right. the store um, or tamales, but, but they still do it. And so I, I propose to mm-hmm. observe home practitioners and to um, use those observations as a kind of a jumping board for this new body of work. And um, yeah, I also did some historical research as well. Right. I was Mm going to say, so it involved interviews and just going deep in the archives of of research as well. Yes. Yeah. And you you found some pretty interesting things too. I remember you posting about about, uh, some of those finds. I did. I actually found... uh, and a definition of nixtamalization in the El Paso Times and that's from like, like right at the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I used be at the that. Of the book. I used, exactly. Yeah, I, I did use it at the beginning of the book to give readers uh, a definition, um, and I thought they they did a nice job describing the process, and they even um, included a word nejayote, which is the water mm-hmm. after the corn boiled with the the limestone or whatever other medium was used mm-hmm. uh, that corn is uh, strained so that water is called nejayote and it was a word that I had never heard and so I looked mm. it up and I found you know found out what it was and then as I interviewed the ladies uh, some of them used the word you know yeah. they 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 knew what it you know they they also had that language so it was very exciting to find <laughs> that word in yeah. our uh, newspaper archives, and I was, I was yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. uh, today, I would, I can't even imagine it in a way. That's yeah. which is, I think, why your work is so important, actually. Um, and I was reading through your manuscript, and I was reading about that word, and uh, like, there's, a, there's like mothers teaching it to their yes. children or grandmothers to their children, and yes, so on. Yes, um, yes. Cool. And so, um, this is not just, you know, I mean, the research. It's also. Poetry. So it's formed, it's the research, but then you're transforming it into poetry. Tell me why you made that choice. Uh, Because that's how my soul expresses. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I've been in in the poetry scene since the late 90s when I was in high school and I was going to poetry readings. Yeah. At that time, there was a cafe called uh, Sojourners. I don't know if Ah, you ever went. I'd heard of it. um, But yeah, so I've, I've been... Uh, writing and publishing in, in some uh, kind of local um, uh, anthologies. And that's so right. I've been, that's kind of my expression of choice mm-hmm. <laughs> for my spirit. And so I thought um, that would be, that would be it. There's, there are some prose pieces as well. Absolutely. Um, and uh, a couple of photos, like I, I used a photo of my childhood. My, my aunties in Mexico had a, have still a tortilleria. So, mm. um, I, I I use that picture, but and I photographed here and there, but primarily, um, I, I'm a poet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> primarily, I'm a poet. I like that. Even even that phrase has like a a music to it. Yeah. You know that <laughs> I think is, is the poet's soul. Yes, it comes yes, out. Totally. You know, even with, without you trying. I hear it. I gotta <laughs> write it down. <laughs> and, and so and so this project, right? Um, it's also you know you've done a lot of work in in I mean you got your master's in public health, right? Yes. And have done a lot of work in. in indigenous foods and ancestral wellness. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Like who brought your focus into ancestral wellness? Yeah, Yeah. that's a great question. So I went into public health um, 
with an interest in farm worker health and um, and public health nutrition. Um, I think because I I was I became a vegetarian when I was a teenager, so I I had to learn how to eat healthy, um, and so that brought me brought my interest into nutrition mm-hmm. and. Um, and so I was also interested in farm worker health, uh, workers' health. Um, I had an uh, an internship at uh, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health uh, in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a place that studies workers' health, right? Um, like home health workers, all kinds of workers' health. So I was interested in workers and health. And um, after I finished at Berkeley, I did some work in the Bay Area, um, mainly around environmental health. It was at the state level. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved back to El Paso, um, I was lucky enough to land at La Mujer Obrera. And so that's a place where I've had the opportunity to um, develop programs um, using you know, my own creativity, but also grounded in the, in the community's knowledge and their own needs and so like when I worked at the state or I got a um, I had work at other nonprofits sometimes those jobs come with the curriculum right this this comes from DC or this was developed somewhere and Mm -hmm. you have to just implement this and at La Mujer Obrera it's uh, it's not like that at all it's more about seeing what the needs are Mm -hmm. and building around that and so at that time they wanted to um focus on the menu at their daycare center, at Rayito de Sol daycare. And so I uh, I worked to develop some menus that um, fo- focused on Mexican food um, mm-hmm. and traditional foods. And so most of, um, uh, most of my work uh, kind of was seated there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to say originally that my, my main teacher was my grandma <laughs> mm-hmm. because I used to spend time with her and learn from her. Um, and it was my favorite thing to just listen to her. And she was a poet, too. She used okay. to improvise <laughs> poems. And she used to tell me about food. And it would be in a very like in a very devotional way. Like she would hold up a tomato and say, look at this beautiful thing that nature made. And she would even kiss it. Yeah. And, and so I have an appreciation for food from her. And for the traditions, like she, she had her metate and she had her outdoor kitchen and she had, um, you know, she, the all the the knowledge of the ingredients and the seeds and what you do. And um, so that, that was my initial uh, school. And then La Mujer Obrera gave me a chance to not let that fade away, you know, and to mm-hmm. actually build on it and put it to use for the community. And so... Um, that, that's where I've worked. And I've also, um, I'm currently still consulting with them. And I've also done work with other uh, local organizations and right. uh, nonprofits. Sometimes you'll see me doing a cooking demo at the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. So I really like to work with food and, and promote uh, local foods and ancestral foods. Mm-hmm. Right. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned that you, you wear many hats. And, and you know, that's yeah. speaking <laughs> of that, you know, you do a lot in education, yes. right, doing workshops and and. On not just food, but even yoga. Yeah, right? that's right. And, uh, you know, uh, recently you did a workshop. Uh, we had a Sibis Eli Fala in town. Yes. And uh, there was the decolonization of people everywhere tour. And you were you got to speak at that. What was your presentation on there? I did. I did. We were on a panel, um, decolonization of people everywhere. I was... Uh, 
the goal for my speech and my compañera Alma Maquitico, who also spoke, was to provide a life with some context about the local um, issues around uh, food systems and kind of food uh, land, uh, connection to land. And um, mm -hmm. so she works, um, she has an, an organic farm where they train Uh, young people of color out in Anthony, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And my, my uh, talk w was focused on, you know, what does it mean to decolonize the diet? You know, that's a word mm -hmm. that is used a lot um, nowadays. And so based on the work that I've um, had the privilege of doing at La Mujer Obrera, you know, I, I shared... I shared some facts that I've learned throughout the years. Like, uh, for example, um, I like to read what the the conquistadores used to write about our foods because mm. they used to really like disparage them. They'd say right. like, oh, nopal, the nopal is a monstrous plant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And then they didn't send samples of nopal to Europe for uh, like decades. Um, wow. uh, uh, they said, um, what else did they say? They said that um, spirulina uh, was like a very bad tasting food and they would know because their palates... <laughs> Are, are made to, to yeah. know what is good, oh you know? Gosh, yeah. And so these kinds, or, or the, the story of amaranth, which I've told a lot um, in mm -hmm. town, how people were forbidden from planting it in, in their gardens. And if you did plant it, uh, the penalty was um, mutilation to cut off your hand or to kill you. And so um, all, these all these stories about our foods can make us uh, rightfully angry and, and say, well, now I'm going to eat it. You know, mm. um, but that's not decolonizing our diet. That alone is not to decolonize. So to decolonize is to to work more in a in a collective, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't. It, it's not decolonization if I'm able to eat this spirulina and this amaranth, but my community is doesn't have access to it or doesn't, you know, isn't organized to improve our own food um, access and um, knowledge of our cultural food. So to, to truly decolonize, we have to to work as a collective, right? So like individuality is is the bedrock of colonization. Like you worry about yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, the talk that I gave um, was to make that point about the importance of organizing at a community level. And that's mm -hmm. uh, important. I, I uh, that's something we discussed uh, when when a life was in town. Uh, episode 30, by the way, if you guys are listening, check that out. Um, and I'll, I'll we'll just go to put that yeah. on the a bookmark on that because I do want to yeah. come back to like him coming to town and the whole oh, yeah. Instagram story and yes, challenge yes. thing. Like we'll we'll go get back to that. Okay. But, you know, I'm still curious about you know your 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 upbringing, growing up on the border, going to school in uh, Berkeley, for example. Like, there's a lot of interesting things that. I'd like to tease out, but what, you know, you, you grew up here on the border, right? Yeah, we got uh, here in 88. I was eight years old. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, do you have any, any story that epitomizes this place? You know, the people like growing up or, or in, since that time? Oh, man. Well, um, I just, I love, what I love about the border is the, the binational art community okay. and how... It just seems seamlessly uh, floats back and forth. Mm -hmm. For the most part, of course, there are people that can't. But for those who can't, I feel like some of the art that we see and hear on this side, you can also see and hear in Juarez because mm -hmm. 
the art community um, is so resilient and uh, and connected. Um, so I I'm thinking about like the the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe when the like Colectivo Resiste, mm -hmm. um, you know, the music shows, the like the the shows of like different kinds of like ska music uh, on both sides of the border, mm -hmm. you know, going over to hear bands in Juarez, um, the backyard shows here in El Paso. Um, and today, you know, artists like Los Dos, mm -hmm. um, And now the you know the museums are in on it too. They're doing this like trans, transnational uh, exhibits, and and I feel like that's something that really started in the underground. And I and I really love that about the border. Yeah, very cool, great. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. And of course, you mentioned Los Dos. They uh, they did the cover art. Here, they did. I was wow. so lucky. I know that they're so busy. You know, mm -hmm. um, but luckily I was able to to. Um, um, find them at a time when they mm -hmm. had space and in their calendar and they really I feel like like more than than an artistic collaboration like it just feels like they I don't know like a blessing you know they, they really listened um, they really um, resonated you know with the themes and um, and so they did a really wonderful job with the uh, the cover art and mm -hmm. also some glyphs that are going to go inside the pages. Mm, okay. uh -huh. How was that process when, you know, did you give the, send them the manuscript so they can get a sense of it? And, or did you kind of give a little sense of like, well, I was thinking maybe something like this on there or like yeah. drawings or, or just yeah. leave it up to them? How, um, yeah, it was, uh, we met initially and I told them about the concept and um, the inspiration and, um, And, and then they also came out on one of the interviews to observe. Mm. Um, and then they sent me a, a draft of their image. And as at the same time that they were, were you know, this is like all within a year. So it's kind of like a, mm -hmm. um, a very uh, quickly <laughs> produced book. Yeah. So as they were working on the, on the art, I was refining my manuscript. I sent them the original draft, but then uh, uh, as, as it evolved and I, And I saw some new themes coming out that I wanted to highlight. I, mm. I told them, uh, like, I think it's important that we represent, for example, um, the, the police state, mm -hmm. the police state and how there's, uh, there's an attack on indigenous people, you know, that's been happening for hundreds of years. It's still here, you know, and despite that, we're resilient and we're cooking and we're surviving and thriving, but, but that's still here. So... I um I asked them to to represent that somewhere on the cover so that it wasn't just the flowery we're so happy we're the you know we love corn mm -hmm. which uh you know I did, I wanted to have some nuance um and so they did a really great and subtle job at at representing um the police state in the cover so hopefully when you're when you all pick up the book you can find the representation of the of the police state but so yeah they they really listened to to my feedback and um and um and that's kind of how it went it was very it flowed very naturally good, yeah good that's great and they're they're such a renowned collective like you said they're pretty busy so it's it's, it's wonderful you know yes. and of course um you know talking about the book i know you're planning to do a, a reading and a, a release and um you know so if you're listening right now go find it 
Go yes. find it. It's out there. Yeah. You know, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Tradiciones Sanas. It's in Spanish. It means healthy traditions. Tradiciones Sanas. So it has a double S right in the middle. Yeah. Sanas. <laughs> but um, you can, you know, I'll be posting updates. Just today I put uh, in my story, you know, the uh, save the date for the release. It's going to be August 15th. It's a Wednesday mm-hmm. from 530 to 7 at the Centennial Museum at, at the campus here at UTEP. Very cool. So if you're listening to this before that date, go check it out. If it's afterwards, mm-hmm. the book is still out there. You yeah. Know, follow her. Um, you know, that's one thing. One of the things I did want to get to is is talking about and it kind of fits into, you know, you're, you're talking about the role of community. I think that uh, we can use technology, social media in, in a good way, productive way. Um, and so how have, how have you discovered Instagram as a way of connecting to not just local, but like larger communities dealing with the same issues and trying to affect change. Yeah. So I I feel like my Instagram feed is very uplifting. I follow people that I'm very inspired by and um, that have similar interests. I follow different um, uh, organizers, um, Native American chefs, um, and and people also in the yoga community, Um and so I, um, I, I've got the idea of hosting a an, a challenge. Last July, actually, it'll mm-hmm. be a year now, um, and that was uh, the the 2017 Yama Niyama Challenge, and which was focused on the uh, the ethical principles of yoga. So mm-hmm. I felt like it was it's an important time in history. It probably always is. It felt especially important lately, but mm-hmm. an important time to. Um, to talk about like universal human ethics, right? And and how, uh, in what ways can we practice them in our everyday life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so uh, these 10 ethical principles in yoga are the, the foundation of yoga. Um, I thought that would be a really great challenge. There's a lot of challenges with people doing like more physical uh, aspects of yoga, poses and but I wanted to focus on on that other piece, the ethical piece. And so, what I what I've done with two out of the three challenges that I've hosted is to um, call on some of these people who I follow, who I admire a lot, and I ask them to be mentors. So they go mm. through the challenge, they post, and then they engage with the with the participants, right? Um, and then what I do basically is do all the behind the scenes promoting and uh, introducing the mentors to the you know, the challenge, um, people, and then, um, you know, handling like, uh, winners and prizes, getting sponsorships, uh, getting prizes to, to give. And so that was a, one of the challenges here, um, uh, last year. And then after that, I did the, uh, ancestral ways challenge mm-hmm. and that was leading up 10 days before day of the dead. So it, uh, it culminated on day of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that one was about, you know, sharing ancestral traditions that um, that were, you know, I think, I can't remember if it was focused on food, um, but it, I think it, a lot of it ended up being focused on food. It was mm-hmm. 10 days of sharing ancestral traditions. So mm-hmm. it could have been about food or any other practice that our ancestors, our grandmothers, or who, you know, whoever raised us, our mentors um, showed us. And so that's when I met A-Life, um, Mm-hmm. I'd been following him for some time. I'd read his book, his books, 
the Hood Health Volumes 1 and 2. I would use them in some of my workshops. So I reached out to him, and he was one of the mentors for that challenge. Yeah, Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he uh, came to El Paso, like I mentioned, did those workshops and loved you, fell in love with you guys instantly. And he said he adopted you as family. Yes, yes. And, Can't uh, wait to have him back. Yeah, he <clears> came <throat> in April. And um, yeah, he but, said, who would know I'd love El Paso? <laughs> I and, uh, he'll, he'll be back. And, and so, again, going back to that point, though, of like Instagram as a way to find larger communities, right? Yeah, and to talk about things that are practical and uplifting mm-hmm. and that help us feel not um, connected and mm-hmm. to help us, um, you know, to help us, yeah, be build build uh, networks um, that sometimes, like, like A-Life, right, sometimes mm-hmm. they manifest in the flesh. Like I met him as an online person I mm-hmm. admired and... And then um, and have become a friend with him. So yeah. so these are all wonderful ways to use social media. Absolutely. And, you know, I know you hear a lot of studies about how social media causes like depression and anxiety mm. and people feel isolated. And, it's kind of like but, the frame we put up. Yeah. And I mean that, you know, I think it depends how much like our dose and then what we're doing in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that was a way to 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 use it in a way that I think uh was more elevating. <clears throat> so in a way, it's a kind of, I mean, just like anything, being more mindful about, mm-hmm. about our how we're using it, you know. Like yeah. you said, yeah. So uh, to kind of go back to uh, your love for poetry. Yeah. I want to know how that started. You know, you talked about your grandmother yes. and everything. like, And then and going up in school, like what got you into kind of writing? Yeah, my grandmother for sure uh, would improvise while she was watering her plants. I remember she would just start... With one hand, she had the hose, and with the other, she was just like, it was up in the air. She was saying poems, um, and she used <laughs> her themes, I would say. She had, like, recurring themes. Yeah. They were the, it was the landscape of her her motherland of Puebla, mm. and animals, and, yeah, the hills, the trees, uh, plants, food. So, like, nature, a lot of nature, and I just loved to listen to her. And then, also, I used to... Um, to read my mom's Juan Gabriel uh, records. So on the the little insert where the record is, the paper mm-hmm. one, that's mm-hmm. where the lyrics were. So that yeah. was really the first time I read poetry. Mm-hmm. Like I read his words and I thought, like my heart started feeling wow. something and I, and I didn't know that words could do that to people. So that was the first time that I felt moved okay. by, by like a ri- the written word. And then um, I, uh, I was writing in a... I think the first poem that I still have is well, from eighth grade, and uh, that teacher was very encouraging me, mm-hmm. with me. And um, and based on her recommendation, when I went to high school, I was placed in an advanced placement type of English classes, mm-hmm. and um, and I was able to to study a little bit more and write, and and I uh, was involved in the high school literary magazine. Um, Very cool. Yeah. And so throughout my life, even though I went into study health sciences uh, and public health, I, um, I always took poetry classes as much as I could. Right. And uh-huh. find, uh, take classes with uh, interesting people. Yeah. Who, who, under, uh, who, who did you study under some like write, creative writing? Um, so at Berkeley, uh, I studied an, under uh, Alfredo Arteaga. He mm-hmm. was in the Chicano Studies program and uh, he passed away. Uh, a, a couple of years after I met him, but he was a, a great friend and mentor. After I took his class, we still mm. would meet and share poetry. 
Um, and uh, and here in El Paso, I, I studied with, uh, she was a visiting professor in the creative writing program. Her name is Connie Wassum. I think she's in the Pacific Northwest now. Mm. Um, and I also studied um, under Miguel Angel Zapata, uh, who's a Peruvian poet um, who is teaching, I think, in New York now. But he was here mm. at UTEP for a while. And I also took some literary translation courses. And then, of course, locally, like Tumble Words workshops. Mm-hmm. You've led you know, some, right? I've led some, and I've, you know, I've been, and and it's a really great place to practice and share. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Shout out to Tumblewords. Yes, of course, Donna. You know. And Donna will be on someday. Yeah, she's been uh, reading at the at the open mics again, which is really cool. Oh, great. <clears throat> um, you know, you mentioned Berkeley, you and you went in, and studied public health, but you know, I'm curious, what was it like being a person of color in a big time university? Well, it was extremely isolating for me mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't just a um, color, but also class mm-hmm. difference. So the only other Mexican person in my class of 120 people was a very wealthy Mexican mm. man who oh, yeah. had, you know, been raised with uh, with maids and, you know, had a lot of privilege. And so um, for me, it was it was. Uh, it was a big shock, you know, yeah, coming yeah. from the my community here in El Paso, where all my peers and I were all equally struggling to afford our books mm-hmm. <laughs> in undergrad, right? And figuring out ways to make that happen, to get our, our books and to, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so over there it was, it was a very, it was a shocking experience, but um, it was also a, a great experience to be able to, to access just uh, resources and knowledge that I, I might not have been able to otherwise. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was. And then you. Good overall. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, to <clears throat> to travel and uh, kind of be shaken from your your understanding of the world yeah. a little bit, you know. And uh, once you graduated, you, uh, where did that lead you? Uh, oh, can I just share a quick story? Absolutely. About that shock. Like I lived in Oakland, California, and uh, I, I took an urban health class. And our professor asked us to um, take a take the public bus in in Oakland as mm. an assignment. You know, mm. and I took public buses. I took two yeah. to get to campus every day. <laughs> two, like just to get there, and then two to get back home. And so, and and so, I didn't think it was a big deal, but then the um, people in my class were very, like, very hesitant and they didn't want to. And then one of them said she, her mom wasn't going to let her do that. What? <laughs> Assignment. So it was a very, just a very different world, yeah, right? Very and shocking. so the, the, the part that um, worried me at that time was like, for example, I took a public health nutrition class and people who were in that class had never been on food stamps Mm -hmm. and so i thought it was odd to expect someone who doesn't know from experience what these programs are like to then go and run them you know what i Mm -hmm. mean because these these people are going to run these programs at a national level so i always um found that kind of shocking (laughs) but um yeah after i graduated um i took a, a job with the state of California um, mm-hmm. uh, with a program called the um, 
the site assessment section of the Environmental Health Investigations branch. And so if you've ever seen the movie Erin Brockovich, it was kind of like that kind of work, uh. going out and to different communities that were worried they were getting sick from exposures to toxics Oof. and um, figuring out what was going on. Mm-hmm. Oh. <clears throat> and, and But eventually you decided to get into community activism. What kind of led to that, that change from leaving that state job to... Yeah. Pushing yourself into Yeah. Well, I think it might have started sprouting before. Uh, mm-hmm. I mentioned that I'd had that internship at NIOSH, uh, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Mm-hmm. And so my, my mentors there were very focused on workers' health and workers' rights. Um, and so that started me in, in that kind of mindset of thinking about um, uh, workers and um uh, and also at that time, that was the fall of 2001. So it was the, the same year as the Twin Towers mm. uh, were attacked. And um, and right before we went into the, the war against uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so I remember protesting at that time. Um, and so when I was in the Bay, um, I think the graduate school just kind of sucked me up so much. I wasn't able to be very active. Um, but after um, I graduated um, and um, and came back home after after working for a bit, um, just seeing you know just seeing the issues and feeling that I, you can't be a silent witness to some things, you right. know. So that's really what drives me uh, whenever I I engage in something. And of course, <clears throat> back home here, there's a lot to be said about. Um, toxicity through you know corporations you know uh there's there's a big battle still right and and some of it comes up in in this book right they're coming yeah. out mentos meals right uh talking about the the neighborhoods here in chamisal having mm-hmm. to deal with uh, well do you want to speak a little bit about, about that yeah absolutely um yeah some of the themes that came out uh were yeah like migration uh it wasn't just about the cooking and the tools but mm-hmm. everything that comes with a complexity of the human experience right so yeah yeah, um um, some of the people that i interviewed uh, are from the chamisal neighborhood and yes there's um there are there are a lot of exposures to residents there because the neighborhood um hosts the you know one of the largest highway arteries in and out of mexico um which is the bridge of the americas and that's the bridge that the big rigs use to come in and out uh, so bringing merchandise back from the factories. Mm-hmm. And they line up, you know, at certain times of the day on Paisano Street. And they, they're they idling because when they go in, they have to wait in line. And so that that alone, those emissions are very toxic. Uh, and then we also have a metal recycling plant um, in the neighborhood. Um, and uh, very not that much green space, um, yeah. you know. So there, I really follow the lead of of uh, local groups like Familias Unidas del Chamisal, and they're really the ones that live here. I mean, I live uh, not too far away, but not, I'm mm-hmm. not exactly in the neighborhood. But they um, they've commissioned studies uh, from UTEP environmental scientists, and even as far as UC Davis, the latest study that I read um, that they shared when they've been advocating against uh, an additional um, source of exposure, which is a, a bus hub that the school district wants to build at Bowie High School right. on top of what was once the um, 
a historic um, baseball field. Um, so, you know, the residents are saying we already are overburdened and uh, now you want to do this. So this one environmental scientist out of UC Davis um, prepared a very thorough study um, showing that, you know, this would increase uh, toxic exposures to the community. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. Definitely. And, and, you know, if you guys are listening are barely like learning about this, go check out some of those groups, some of the posts being made. Uh, check out the research because there's also, of course, um, you know, we talk about environmental racism, like why this spot? You know, mm-hmm. they would never approve this plan at, you know, any of the richer schools yeah. inside of town. So I think these are all important questions to keep in mind and uh, do what we can to to protect our people. Yes, you know? absolutely. And uh, so check those out. Um, and, and I definitely, so I was reading through your manuscript and I, I saw that coming up, you know, a little yeah. bit of that kind of current struggles. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, going back to, to the book, uh-huh. you know, uh, I know that uh, Rob, good old awesome Rob, you know, <laughs> uh, created this analogy of like, if your book were a CD, yeah. you know, what would be the single? Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Like, tell us about the singles. My singles. I know. I think I have like four or five. It's supposed to be a one single, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. is, is it truly a single if it's a more single than a... if it's a... <laughs> You're talking about a, yeah. a double, so. a triple? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really like... Um, a couple of the pieces that I feel like really capture what uh, what I'm trying to say in the mm-hmm. in the entire book. Um, maybe I can read one of the ones that ha- uh, the one that contains the reference to what's going on in the chamisal and the toxics. I have that one. I it's would, a little long. Is that okay? Should it's I make fine. it short? Oh, no. no? Uh, read however you would like to read. You know, read whatever you'd like to. Um, just you know, like I said, the point is just so we can get it all out there. Give it a little teaser. Yeah. You know, so people can go out and. Check out the rest. Find any any work that you feel represents the. Does it? It doesn't have to be what we were just talking about, but just maybe one that you feel represents the the spirit of the book or the tone of the book. Okay, so I'll read a, a poem called "Ingredients," uh, which uh, was inspired by me going all around town and looking at ingredients lists mm. to see how they describe what tortillas are made of. Mm. <laughs> and so that's how the poem starts, and then it kind of evolves a little bit. Ah, yes, I remember this one. Yeah. <laughs> So it's called Ingredients. White corn, water, and a trace of lime. Ground corn treated with lime. White corn cooked with lime, water. Specially ground and dehydrated whole white corn, water, calcium propionate, and a trace of lime. Fermented coarsely ground corn by benign hands. Freshly soaked and ground pungent yellow flint corn embraced by cinnamon and guava steam in old adobe home. Unsalted old Spanish tiles, missing cabinet door mixed with Gabriel's question about another Morelense revolutionary and a child asking, what's piloncillo? Maíz blanco fermentado con comanse un tamal mientras se cuecen las tortillas. Con café instantáneo, con prensa de madera que le regaló su prima, con sonrisa puntuada con plata, con amistad calientita, recién hecha a mano que no necesita más que una pizca de sal. 
corn thickly, thickly ground on hand mill, table dents where mill holds its bite, cold handle, hard to turn, treated with body position, how to approach, where to place feet, righty or lefty, awaken memory, ask grandmother, remember her movement, preserved in DNA, that rhythmic cranking, bowls skipping melodically on table. Puebla and Morelos cooked with frontera. Abraceros sun treated with thyme. Specially ground and dehydrated white scorn. Organic raw tile notch where mill fell on the floor. Treated with bad news about someone detained at the border last night with a dash of, she's a good kid, an engineering student. Do you know any good lawyers? Wow. Yeah. I had, I had it pulled up right here. And that's you, one of the ones that stood out to me when you, when you sent me the manuscript, because you do see kind of the intertwining of just ingredients, you know, what goes into it. But then like these, these narratives that are kind of weaved along the way, you know, and, and uh, we were talking about earlier about how food is such a central component of culture. You know, so you're getting like kind of these these news threads of what are we talking about? You yeah. Know, and, and the families and that are involved in, in say, cooking. Yeah. So on. So, yeah, it made me think about identity and like mm -hmm. in how many ways can we say, uh, can we describe, you know, what goes into corn, into yeah. tor corn tortillas, <clears throat> you know, and then just the different, in how many ways can we describe like some of these Right. experiences um, here on the border and then while I was observing. So these are, um, a lot of these are mainly observations from the time that I was um, interviewing the ladies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that, that preserved in DNA, that rhythmic cranking bowl, skipping melodically on table. Like that's uh, Something I noticed was that, um, you know, when someone's a pro at something, like a really good bike rider, mm -hmm. and they kind of become one with the bike. Yeah. It's the same thing with the hand mill that uh, people use to grind corn. Like Which it, is on the cover, by the way, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, you can see yeah. it on the cover. And if you, it's your first time ever using it, you might like approach it kind of awkwardly mm -hmm. and not know where to mm -hmm. stand and, you know, and, and how, which direction, direction to crank it and if it's going to like fall off the table mm. or so there's, um, there's something to be said. I, I took a video of a, of a, one of the ladies that's like a pro at this. She yeah. just becomes one with it, you know? Wow. Yeah. And I sat down with, um, Melissa Lugo, who's a, a physical therapist by training, a local uh, person, very active with the bicycling community right. also. So she helped me break down like, the mechanical anatomical movement you know i said oh, i want to wow. capture this because there's there's some <laughs> mastery here you know and and um yeah so i, I thought it was really neat to observe that because i observed myself <laughs> mm -hmm. grinding you know and i'm definitely a beginner <laughs> and yeah and just to see like a master at work it was it was really great mm -hmm. there's some some uh, observation in that you know yeah uh, and that's one of the things i love about poetry is the way of seeing the world, looking into the soul of things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, that's that's wonderful. Uh, do you have a actually one thing that that uh, I was also curious about is is your interest in not just interest but getting into San Jorocho. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, tell us a little about your experience in that. Like, how did you discover it, pick it up, like, and then, you know, participating in Fandangos and, you know, I'm just, because I think even in the singing of it and, you know, we've talked about like the lines, it's like improvised poetry too. Yes. You know? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, I was living in the Bay Area. Uh, It was while I was at graduate school that I, um, I was, I had the opportunity through friends to meet, um, yeah, people who practice on Jarocho very seriously in the Bay and also uh, masters who, master musicians and poets who were coming up to that area to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started because I heard, um, I heard the decima, which is the po- the po- one of the styles of poetry that's performed or practiced in, in San Jarocho. And it was with Sergio Gutierrez, uh, who at the time was the lead singer of a group um, out of San Jose. Um, and he uh, he really blew my mind with the way that he performed. I used to not be into like rhymey poetry. <laughs> yeah. And that was the first time when I really like loved it, the, the way that he delivered it with the cadence and the music in the background. And then he started improvising about what was going on there in that cadence, in that rhythm. And I just felt like I have to learn this. So after that show uh, at La Peña Cultural Center in in Oakland, uh, in Berkeley, California, um, I asked him if he would teach me. And he said he would. And uh, other friends also wanted to learn. So we formed a group. And so he led us through the different um, uh, types of of lines and, uh, and formats. Uh, that uh, and the kind of like the peak, the ultimate is the the decima spinella, which is a, a ten line poem. Um, but he started with seguidillas, which is just like line after line that rhymes with the, oh. with itself. You know, okay. the same the same ending. So a a a a if you're a poet, right? A a a a a b b b b b or whatever the the ending of the line is. But uh, so eventually, so there's like cuartetas, which are four line poems, quintetas, sextetas, like that. Mm. Uh, f- five, six lines, and the the ultimate is the, the decima, and the ultimate ultimate is to be able to improvise, and to even like challenge each other. So mm. if so, if I want to challenge you to a, a, a decima, then I'll give you your last line, and you have to come up with this whole poem that ends in that line. Oh, wow. You know, and that rhymes in a specific pattern with that last word of that last line. So that's called a pie forzado, and so. There was a lot of play with that, with poetry, and that's what—that's always what gets me, because right, because that's wow, my soul speaks. So, <laughs> uh, so I started with the poetry, and then after that, I started dancing. I, uh, I started so zapateado. Zapateado, right? yeah. I, I studied with uh, Anaí, uh, and and then after dancing, I um, I took up the jarana itself uh, with uh, Licio Seguera, and then tell us about the jarana. So the jarana is uh, an instrument that's made out of one piece of wood. Um, and it, this tradition comes from the Mexican state of Veracruz. And and it's a mixture of um, indigenous, Spanish, and African influences. Mm. And so um, the jaranas are very small. I was told that it's because they were not allowed. So they had to be small so they could be hidden quickly. Uh, And so there's different sizes. There's some very, very small ones people uh, call mosquitos uh, because they sound kind of like like high pitch. And then uh, mine is a segunda, 
um, going into a tercera, it's kind of a little bit bigger, but then there's even bigger ones than that. And, um, and so they're handmade. There's no like factory that makes these. They're all made by the master maestros. And, um, and so they're, they're handmade and they, uh, they have six strings, uh, double strings. I'm not a musician by training, but, um, I, um, it's, um, yeah, so I don't know how else to describe them, but it's all made out of wood. Even the pegs are wood, so they're sensitive to like humidity and heat. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, so, so that's, that's the head. And there's other instruments too, like the tarima, which you dance on, that's a wooden platform. Mm -hmm. And then, um, other instruments like the requinto, which is also a string instrument, but it has, I think, only four strings. It does the melody. Mm. And the jaranas do more of the like the, the rhythm, the percussion-y yeah. kind of rhythm. Um, so if you, once I learned zapateado and I learned the percussion for the feet, then that transfers to the hands. Mm. Um, and then um, there's also other instruments too, like the uh, the quijada, like a, a, a donkey jaw that is cleaned right. a specific way so that the teeth rattle. It's and yeah, like a, it's kind of like a guido. Yeah. And also if you hit it, it rattles the teeth. Um, and there are other instruments too, like the harp sometimes, uh, or the marimbol. That's the, is that the big bass one? Uh -huh. doom, doom, yes, doom, doom, with the metal doom, doom, tongues. Doom, doom, doom. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so much fun. Yeah, I'm actually going to a fandango after this. Um, Tell us about the yeah, fandango. So the fandango is a community celebration. It's a way to, um, it's it's not a performance, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a it's an event where people can participate. Mm -hmm. um, there's also doesn't mean it's total chaos. There's some mm -hmm. order. So usually the more experienced uh, people will start it off and set the rhythm and and call the songs that are going to be played, and then. The, there's like circles. So outside the perimeter, the outside circle uh, is usually the beginners who are trying to follow along on their jaranas, um, playing a little bit maybe more softly or, or trying to just, you know, keep the, uh, the chords. Um, and then at the center of the, of the fandango is the tarima. And so that's where the, the heart, okay. of the, that's where you dance. And so there, there are hundreds of sones. And um, they all have different themes. So, like, for example, La Guacamaya is about the environment. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean that we have to sing it the way it was written, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, so what I like about Son Jarocho is that you can write verses so that you're singing about your own community, you know? Ah, okay. And so my teacher used to say that to me. She's from Veracruz, but she said, you all aren't from Veracruz. I don't expect you to sing about about palm trees, you know? <laughs> She's like, sing about what's happening for you, what's oh, happening man, in your community. So, you know, you have a chance to write and to share that. And so at Fandangos, you get to hear other people's verses, right? And so... Um, that's why they call, instead of calling them cancion, which is a song, they mm -hmm. call them son, because son. they say a son is not a song, because a song always starts the same way the verses come in, and there's this pause in the second verses mm -hmm. or whatever. But in a son, it's whatever verses you know and I know and whoever else is here knows. So if we're playing this guacamaya with these five people, it's going to sound different than next week when I play with to other people and mm. because it, it relies on the verses that we each know and 
Um, so it's it's different every time. How, in is, that sense. is there a, a general length to a verse? Um, well, there's they're usually uh, line, uh, four to six lines. Okay. Mm-hmm. In some, it can be up to ten. So it like, depends like, on like the bars. Yeah, like, like for uh, like a stanza mm-hmm. with um, with four to six lines. Mm. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I know you brought your harana. I don't know. Would, yeah. would you mind maybe showing us a little? Sure. Like, okay. Still doing a little demonstration. Okay. <clears throat> awesome. <laughs> So this is a, you know, audio podcast, but, you know, there's a visual element as well. I know all that clangering, that (laughs) clamoring and clanging around you heard is the the beautiful harana that you have there. Sorry, harana. (laughs) Well, that sounds good. Yeah. Is that loud enough? I think so. Yeah. yeah. It picks it up pretty nicely. So check it out. Here's an example. All right. Let's see what we got here. For La Guacamaya About the border Yeah That's awesome yeah. It's turned into Tiny desk concert <laughs> El Paso <laughs> that, was, that was nice though yeah. And uh, I've always had A, a profound respect For uh, Son Jorocho Because I learned it Through you guys You know You and, and Roberto I've known now for for many years and and uh you know that's always something that i've respected about it is the the community that comes along with it you know it's not just like being in a rock band and going to shows and playing it's 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 about coming together and, and sharing like yes. you said lyrics and rhymes and yeah and just working, celebration yeah and even working through conflicts you know exactly. so sometimes maybe somebody is hitting on someone for the first time mm. in the fandango you know and mm. we'll say a specific compliment like about the bracelet you're wearing or like, you know, you're, you know, they're talking about you, you know, and they're like, Oh my God. But also maybe someone can say how they're mad at someone because mm-hmm. they cheated on her, you know, or, or they can make fun of politicians or they yeah. can talk about, you know, the, the environmental issues in their, in their region. So it's really a place where you can express what's happening in at a large and 
small scale. Live, live and direct, you know, <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, call them out. <laughs> it's very hip-hop culture. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I dig that. Um, yeah. You know, that reminds me of uh, when, uh, was it Las Cafeteras came into town? And you got to jam with them. If you remember, like, I don't even know how many years ago, the, the L.A. band that does Sonoro Show. I do remember. But, I had never heard of but them. But they also incorporate, like, hip-hop and spoken word with, like, their, their instruments. And they had, like, the whole ensemble and, you know, involved a lot of Zapatero. And it's just, it's just like, fun. You know, I think there's a zest in life in, in going to one, to a Fandango. And uh, that's super cool. I don't want to keep you too, too long, you know. Um, so, again, we have Ruby here. And she has her book, Inventos Mios, on the way. So if you're listening to this, it might be already out. But, you know, like I said, check check all those things out that we've been talking about. Again, her Instagram. Yes, it's like, Tradiciones Sanas. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll link it up. Yes. And if you miss the, the reading at the Centennial Museum here in El Paso on August 15th, um, I'll also be leading a Tumble Words workshop okay. on September 29th. So maybe you'll still catch that. But if not, then I'll catch you on the on the social media. <laughs> yeah, you know, catch out, check out the, I'm sure there'll be featured challenges. Yes. It's great to to incorporate one another, to, to become leaders, mentors, and uh, pretty much hold each other up in, yes. these, in these trying times, you know, because it's so easy to get cynical with everything going on and we got to kind of keep each other up. Yes, absolutely. Bring that joy, joy into life. I think that's why I liked you and Rob so much when I first met you. You were oh, both yeah. so like positive energy. See, we just haven't like... even gotten into that, you know. Want to want to end with a little bit of yeah. that reminisce? So tell, tell. <laughs> what was it? Uh, I remember it was a Shaka Toki show at at Sumatra, kind of running into you and like pretty much everyone. Yeah, and, it was uh, July of 2011. I remember. Dang, it was a summer well, night. Of course you remember. Of course you remember. You know, it was a summer night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, that blossomed into a, a beautiful love story, you know. And I, I, I was lucky enough to be a, a passenger, you know, yeah. aside for that. You got from, front row from Bunny tickets. Labs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, and, and you know, actually, uh, uh, Roberto Santos, um, he became my poetry editor too. That's right. Not only did I marry him, but <laughs> when I. <laughs> When I started this project, I asked him for help, and um, and he and he really helped me a lot with it. Yeah, yeah, he and was he, actually very rigorous. <laughs> and he, I was about to say though, you know, yeah. he's definitely trained in that. Yeah, he's at MFA uh, episode twenty three. If you guys are listening, Rob, Rob is on episode twenty three. That was a fun episode. That was the MJ episode. Michael Jordan. Oh yeah. 23. <laughs> I used to tell him when we were going through different um, feedback sessions. Yeah. My brain would hurt afterwards. Like yeah. I felt like like he flossed my brain in between Ooh. like the lobes wow. and like what oh, imagery oh. on that? <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Does you're gonna put my name on there that I'm the poetry editor? I have to do. Yeah, yeah. I have to do this." That's fair. Tell, <laughs> tell me a little bit more about your team. Look, so you know, it's it's not just your project, but you've incorporated like had a bunch of other people help yes, you. Let's, let's give amazing. them some light Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I did the poetry part. Um, uh, the ladies I interviewed um, are, are several from around town. Um, Ligia, Ana, Celsa. Um, um, Ligia, Ana, Celsa, Maria Tomasa, uh, even Sandra Luz. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but, and then... Uh, my uh, friend and uh, 
who I think has a great eye for, for photography, Victoria Quevedo. I asked yeah. her to be the photographer. And, uh, and she has a very sweet and subtle presence. So she <laughs> took a lot of great shots without like taking any like uh, energy away from what was happening. She was very subtle and, and her shots are really great. So she, she took the pictures um, that are in the book. And I think I'm going to make some of those into postcards. Yeah, I think they're really nice. Really um, and then um, uh, Los Dos designed the cover and the glyphs on the inside. Um, and uh, David Diaz um, did the photo editing, so he took Victoria's really great pictures and just did a little bit of tweaking here and there so we could see, like, the hair on the lady's arm. You know what I mean? Right. He did a great job with that. Um, and then, of course, I had a, uh, I had a lot of support from, from MCAD, um, uh, Becky Munoz there, um, uh, you know, Helped me a lot when I had questions about, you know. She's so helpful, yeah. Yeah, very accessible. Yeah. Um, you know, because this was all on my own. Like, I had to do everything, the ISBN and the barcode. And it was just like birthing my own little book, you know. And then I was also lucky to have uh, local reviewers. Um, Richard Yanez, who mm -hmm. is a professor of English at EPCC. Yes. Yeah. He wrote uh, El Paso del Norte, Stories on the Border. And then poet uh, Andrea Bal Blancas Beltran. Uh, also reviewed the the manuscript and uh, and then an Oakland poet friend Arnoldo Garcia, mm. uh, who's also been published, but he didn't want it um, listed on the review for some reason. He just said, "Just say I'm a poet from South <laughs> Texas living in Oakland." <laughs> but um, but yeah, so so there it definitely feels like a like a big uh, community effort, and even like. The corn that I brought here to the studio to show you, my mom brought that from Mexico, you know. So, like, yeah. I, when I have the exhibit, I want to have, besides the reading itself, mm -hmm. I want to have a long table with the different stages of the nixtamalization process so people can see what it is and then, like, touch it, smell it. Um, and so I, there's going to be an interactive element. So I'm gathering supplies. So even now, like I'm using some of Celsa's corn and my mom brought me corn and, and this mineral called Tequesquite. And so um, I'm still kind of getting people on the team to help me out. And the, right. yeah, so and I'm also really grateful to um, the Centennial Museum. I think it's a, a, a great fit for the reading um, it's going to be catered. I think I'm going to have some a special nixtamal kind of menu. Oh wow! And um, yeah, so it's a big, <laughs> it's a big collective uh, project. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to, you know, that's that's why I do this show. You know, give everyone a, a shout out, a chance yeah. to to shine. So um, thanks for for being on the show so much. Thank you uh, for having me. You know, again, if you're listening, give us a, check us out online. If you're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, all that, uh, give us a, a rating. Let us know what you thought. Give us any feedback. Tell us who you'd like to see more of on the show and uh, what type of uh, guests, writers, poets, musicians. Let us know. We want your feedback. Um, Ruby, yo, like we got to hear one more. You want to you want to end us off on one last one With last the, reading? Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, I'll read you this one. All right, cool. It's um, a poem about the ingenuity of husbands. It's in three parts. Um, here, there, and across nations. You got okay? it. All right, here we go. Here, her husband custom built a table for her molino. Measured, cut out rectangle at just the right coordinates through the surface. Through it, 
her ground corn would land on a lower shelf. She still grieves for him, cannot get herself to sell or donate or dump, dump the table. It lives in her yard, along with the Virgen statue and the Nopalera in the Chamisal neighborhood, where diesel trucks block the flow of traffic and their particulate matter blocks the flow of oxygen to the lungs of children at Savala Elementary and Bui High. Why must brown children suffer consequence of policy in their developing lungs, arteries, brains? Sometimes life itself departs. After 9-11, longer bridge waits, children asleep in sea of idling cars, suspended on bridges with flags. One, two, three, four hours of carbon monoxide, never to wake again. And those that awake collect internal scars. We, resilient beings, sometimes still graduate and move to Austin and visit our mom at Christmas and call ahead to say, Mom, Quiero que este año nos enseñe a hacer los tamales desde el principio. Desde el principio. In the beginning, there was the grandmother. And the grandmother said, You are ready to learn. I will teach you. In the beginning, there was her mother in Magallanes. She set the stool by the mill table so five-year-old Maria could reach the handle, could learn to say ni jayote could soak this practice into her every cell. She would never forget. There. In 1966, as my dad, Fresno-born son of a bracero, picked grapes in Woodville, California, my mom's father poured cement in Morelos, following the strict instructions of a Scorpio matriarch who also took corn into account. Fire would stall in northwest corner of the plot, outdoor fireplace visible from kitchen window, low cement platform on which to place metate so she won't have to kneel. The way she kneeled as a young girl, arrimada, 4 a.m. kerosene lamp, grating bottom mounds of palms, weathering wrists on metate so others could eat warm tortillas. The way decades before Paula kneeled while grinding, her infant boy safe from death threats in asylum laid across her calves. Across nations. In Anthony, New Mexico, another son of a bracero flowed back and forth from Chihuahua to southern New Mexico like masa in and out of the mill, each trip more ready, more softened, molded by hardship, by being ground between two plates, two countries, two motherlands. In Juarez, he salvages defective mill parts to make one functional machine in his home. In southern New Mexico, it grinds three and a half pounds of corn per minute, it is open for neighbors to bring their own nixtamal to grind. Wow. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank that you. did have a lot of other things we talked about. Yeah, right? Wow. So <clears throat> thanks for sharing those two. The The collection has way more. And as you mentioned, all sorts of other media yes. involved with it. So check out Inventos Mios. We'll also have some prints for sale. I mentioned the postcards yeah. I want to make out of Victoria's photographs. But um, also Los Dos uh, and I are going to print a limited run of um the cover art, which is really gorgeous. Um, I'll start sharing more of it on Instagram in the coming days. Right on. Very cool. Um, thanks for any words of why to the wise to end this off. Just keep it collective. <laughs> keep it collective. Keep it collective. Right. I dig it. <laughs> awesome. So this is Ruby. I'm Rich. Uh, this is B-Wom's podcast. See you next time. Peace. Bye. Me dices en clandestino, yo soy el quebrale.